Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This show is about how to talk with very young children. Sometimes it's not even about talking. Sometimes it's about sending unconscious messages to children about race. For some people, this might make you feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. I'm hoping to start a dialogue. So after the show, maybe find someone to talk about what you heard and what you might want to say to your own children. Today, I'm talking to you from my home just outside Minneapolis, Minnesota. All eyes were on the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer who was charged in the killing of George Floyd right here in Minneapolis. But then police killed yet another young Black man just days ago in Brooklyn Center, a northern suburb. And we are left again, struggling to find words to make sense of this. This all has me thinking about our young Black and Native children and children of color. How do we prepare them for these events? And how can we build them up so they are stronger than the racism they will face? This is a job for all of us. Whether you are Black, white, or a person of color, we all have a role to play. My guest today has been doing this for 20 years. Andre Dukes has 20 years of experience working with children and families. He has a master's in applied child development and teaches in the infant observation program at the University of Minnesota. He currently is the vice president of family and community engagement at the Northside Achievement Zone in Minneapolis. And most importantly, Andre is a very good friend of mine. So I am so excited to have him with me today. So hi, Andre. Welcome. Thank you, Diane. It is my pleasure to be here with you today, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) You and I both live close to Minneapolis. And so you're working in the community. What are you hearing from young children and their parents in the community? What are people saying and feeling and and talking about regarding the murder of George Floyd? Let me just say, first of all, that um, this whole situation for African-Americans, it's like a nightmare that we never wake up from Mm. when we continue to see these same types of injustices perpetuated against our community. And so what we are hearing um, from parents and from children and just from the African-American community is just how re-traumatizing these kinds of instances are. Mm -hmm. And so there's just this um, feeling of being overwhelmed, um, being tired, feeling less safe. You know, you typically would look to law enforcement to help, you know, keep the community safe. Right. But, you know, when you are also questioning, you know, law enforcement and their role in public safety, you know, it's like, who do you look to? Yeah. Children are asking a lot of questions Mm -hmm. about why it is that George Floyd in particular lost his life and, you know, what's going to happen with his daughter How is she going to grow up? Um, Children are asking, you know, could this happen to me? Mm -hmm. You know, and how do I prevent 
this from happening to me? What steps do I need to be taking? And, you know, not all children are going to have the language around race. And so they may not say white and black, but certainly they understand differences. Yes, yes. And they're asking, why is it that, you know, people that look differently than me or see me as different, why do we treat each other the way we do? And I imagine that a lot of parents, and actually I heard from parents, they're at a loss as really what to say to their children about what happened. Yeah, I think the important thing to note is that, you know, just because there are injustices and that people don't always treat each other in appropriate ways doesn't mean that that has to change you. Mm. And I think particularly for children, um, they need to feel like they can express themselves. I always say one of the greatest oppressions is the inability to express yourself. And so just reinforcing to children, you can still talk to people about the way you're feeling. You can ask questions. Mm -hmm. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to disagree with some of the things that you are hearing, but at least have a conversation and talk to an adult about what you are feeling, what you are thinking about. And it's okay to be afraid. Right. A lot of what we are seeing in terms of just the aggression Mm -hmm. that is being displayed between, you know, law enforcement and community members, you know, makes children afraid. And and this is one of those events that has been so far reaching. If you don't know kind of what happened, you must be kind of living under a rock. So a lot of parents are talking about it with each other and with other adults. And so their young children are, you know, sitting around when they're talking about it. So, Andre, what would you say to a three-year-old about what happened to George Floyd? Yeah, you know, it's important at the toddler stage to really emphasize that bad things do happen. Um, and sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you have to live in fear, that you can't express yourself. Yes. And it's okay, again, to express yourself, to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, it's scary and as traumatizing as these kinds of um, situations are for young children, I think it's important that we help them find bright spots, mm-hmm. really appreciating the people that are stepping up and using their voice and speaking about justice. We can talk to children about justice, doing what is right, mm-hmm. treating other people the way we want to be treated. I think these are, you know, definitely ways that we can help um, children get through these moments. So, Andre, can you think of a time that maybe you have talked to a young child or, or even had to coach another parent on how to talk to a young child about these kinds of things? Yeah. So as a pastor in North Minneapolis, I've had the unfortunate privilege of officiating several funerals of young people that have died to uh, violence And, you know, there's always a sibling, there's always children um, that um, are in the picture and that are trying to really process and understand what is happening. And there are instances where law enforcement has been involved. And so um, starting by asking them, how are you feeling? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And really 
validating what they are experiencing in the moment. And some of it could be anger and rage and frustration and being able to, to validate that and say, yes, I understand all of those emotions and then start to talk to them about ways in which they feel good. Even in this time mm-hmm. that they are struggling and trying to find understanding that they can, you know, find joy and go outside and play and just asking, you know, what are some things that you love to do that might take your mind away from what you're experiencing right now? Um, And then really creating those kinds of spaces where they can just enjoy life and not have to dwell on the horrible circumstances that they are enduring, taking them, you know, for ice cream. Mm -hmm. When I have to um, address, you know, these issues with children, I always start with, you know, how they are feeling because I don't want to assume and, you know, I don't want to trigger them either. So I may think that they feel a certain way, but, you know, my words can be triggering if I'm not careful. And I've been in several circumstances where I'm asking too many questions and too many of the wrong questions. And, you know, I get shut down, whether it's a child or an adult. So I have learned to just ask the questions, how are you feeling? And kind of just follow their lead in the conversation. Follow their lead. Yeah. yeah. I really like that and, and really validate what they're feeling. And, you know, maybe even if they need help them to articulate what they are feeling so that they're not holding it inside. And then like what I like to call diversion. Right. <laughs> so right. you're able to kind of, cause you don't want them to get stuck there. And so maybe even, you know, let's go play catch or do something physical, you know, so that we don't get stuck in this place that can be so scary, you know, for very young children. Absolutely. So, Andre, when is the appropriate time to do that, to start talking about those things? Uh, I, I know there's conflicting points of view on that. Some say that for young children, uh, it might just scare them. So what do you say about the appropriate age to have these conversations? Yeah, personally, I feel that um, when children start asking the question is a good time to have the conversation. And so not all children are going to, you know, question difference or question race at the same time. But when we think about um, development, there are, you know, domains of development. And one domain that is beginning to emerge more, but is really not codified in all of our system is the domain of identity. Teaching children at an early age, as early as possible to appreciate their color, their culture, their identity, who they are, are things that I think will help when they do run into situations where people treat them differently as a result of who they are or how they look, right? What happens a lot of times is children get caught off guard because they don't understand what makes them different or, you know, what makes them less than other people who may treat them differently. And so uh, much of that is because they have not developed a appreciation for who they are. And as much as we can instill that in them early, we'll lessen the impact when these kind of encounters happen. This is excellent, Andre. So I know many parents might need resources to kind of manage their own feelings about what's happening. And quite frankly, you know, a lot of this can be confusing to adults. Sure. 
where are people finding that help and, and what kind of resources could you suggest for parents? Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about what is happening right now at a community level is there are safe spaces that have been um, developed where people can go and just talk and process their feelings, learn from each other, talk about how they are addressing this issue with their children. These spaces could be um, houses of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, They could be community centers, coffee shops, but um, I'm just really impressed at the different spaces that are being um, uh, developed just to talk and to process But then there are resources like Little Moments Count, which is a web-based tool for parents and for professionals to get information about how to talk to children and how to interact with children around their development. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, these kinds of real practical um, issues that we are facing and, you know, giving us tools and direction to have these conversations with children. Just a note here, this podcast is a project of Little Moments Count. You're listening to Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. I'm Diane Halsey, and my guest today is Andre Dukes, early childhood and family expert with the Northside Achievement Zone in Minneapolis. You know, part of parents' hesitation sometimes to talk with their children about race has to do with how they were brought up and the experiences that they have had. And so I want to talk about something because I understand that you also had a traumatic event that involved the police when you were very young. Can you tell me a little bit about that? The earliest experience that I have interacting with police really was you know, officer friendly who would come to our school and talk to us about, you know, safety in the community and how we can keep ourselves safe. He was a nice man and um, someone that we all looked up to and we wanted to become a police. And that changed when I was about six years old. I was in Iowa and um, my uncle and my mother were involved in an altercation with some adults And the police showed up to the scene and I was removed from our car and literally thrown on the ground. Mm. And my mother, of course, reacted. And, you know, there was some aggression that was shown towards her, Mm. which caused me to be traumatized um, in that moment. I will never forget that day, the feelings that I had the looks on the faces of my mother and the officer and all of the people that were there. Wow. It just really caused a lot of confusion in me because I had such a great experience, but now here I'm learning that not all officers are friendly. Mm. And you were six years old. (laughs) And I was six years old. Right. And so I didn't really have a context for race at that time. I wasn't thinking about race. All I knew was that, you know, this officer was not kind to me and was not being kind to my mother, whom I love dearly. Mm. And so that really, you know, caused a conflict in um, how I process my relationships with law enforcement. Yes, I, I can imagine And how do you think that experience so young at six years old shaped you as an African-American man? 
Yeah, so I still have a respect for law enforcement and always will. But then there's another side of me, that other side that was traumatized at six years old, that always questions my interactions with authorities and if they are going to be good interactions or if I'm not going to come out alive. Yes. And so I think that is a real experience for African-American men, especially when you know you have been in situations where you have been profiled. Like, I know I was not doing anything illegal, yet I was pulled over. Or, you know, I know that I was not doing anything um, wrong, yet I was approached because I was with a group of other Black kids, you know, and we were hanging out because we had nowhere else to go. But, you know, certainly we were suspect in the minds of law enforcement. And so that kind of interaction always causes question in the minds of individuals on how they are going to engage with law enforcement and the outcome thereof. Yes, I I so I have, as you know, I have three African-American sons and I have a brother. And so this is something that is, 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 is constant. And I distinctly remember my father, uh, my brother got pulled over by the cops when he was about 15 years old for the first time Mm. and um, had an altercation and had to spend maybe one night in a juvenile detention. And I just remember my father, who was a very proud and distinguished man, just, um, almost crumpling under the anger of having to talk to his son Mm. about the police and the unfairness about how he was being treated. Right. Uh, And it's not just about the police. Research shows that even preschool teachers have an implicit bias that hurts black boys. In 2016, there was a study from the Yale Child Study Center, and you may be familiar with this, and it found that both white and Black preschool teachers spend more time focusing on Black students because they expect bad behavior. As a result, Black children are four times more likely to be suspended from preschool than white children. Preschool. Yes. We're talking three and four-year-olds, sometimes a little younger. Yes. Not because their behavior is more problematic than white children's, but because teachers are watching them more because teachers expect bad behavior. Mm. So from a very young age, black boys are already experiencing a teacher's implicit or unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. What do you say about that? Yeah, this is um, something that we deal with on a regular basis. Um, In fact, I just had a conversation with an early childhood center director who is trying to keep a toddler in her program, but the teaching staff feels like the behaviors, and this child has some developmental issues, but the behaviors are just unbearable. And they just don't know what to do. And so she is reaching out to me to try to, you know, figure out solutions to keep this scholar in the program. But here's the thing that when we think about um, behaviors, we don't really look at behaviors as expressing a need. There is an expectation of behavior. And when we don't see those behaviors being demonstrated, then we automatically see there as something wrong. Not as though there is something that is needed, right? 
we really have to start looking at behaviors in children as expressing need because they have not developed the language. They have not developed the understanding to be able to articulate what they need. And so they acted out in behaviors. And so we can't judge or pathologize those behaviors, but we can respond in kind and find out how we can help to mitigate whatever fears, whatever um, gaps there may be that are causing a challenge for this child. Uh, I like that. We need to really pay attention to what's happening to that child instead of just writing them off as bad behavior. Right. We've talked a lot about how to prepare young children of color for racism What are some ways that we can build a child's positive cultural identity? You started talking about that a little bit, but. Absolutely. I think positive affirmations, starting early, telling our children that they are beautiful, that um, they are precious, that they are valuable, that they are smart, they are intelligent. There's this myth that we can spoil children. And I just, I don't believe that we can spoil children. They need to be affirmed every day and in every space. When I think about healing spaces for children, I think about places in the community where every community member is instilling in every child a sense of worth and value and agency. And so um, just those affirmations are a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Also, I think it is about engaging children in our culture, telling them about our history. Even before we came to um, America, African people were kings and queens and had great civilizations and controlled resources across the earth and not only controlled them, but shared them, (laughs) you know, which is why we are such hospitable people and really being able to narrate that and tell that story and to tell how we are such um, creative and musical people, because that is the way that we communicate it in our history. It's in our DNA. It is a part of our ancestry. Yes. So the children are excited about, oh, you mean I come from this? I mean, this is great. This is royal. And you know, I want to do more. <laughs> I know who I am. And I think this is the things that we have to do, not just at home, but schools need to have this as a core part of their curriculum to teach identity and appreciation for person that is so important to the trajectory, the life trajectory of all children. Oh, I just so agree with everything you're saying, Andre. And, and, and for young children too, you know, um, we did a lot to really make sure our children, like you said, are built in with their ego strength is what I like to call it. And yeah. sometimes when my children have gone into elementary school Absolutely. and later to junior high, Absolutely. Um, they have had to tell people who they are on several instances because people um, mistook them for somebody else, if you know what I mean. And so they've had to stand up and say, no, I'm not that. This is who I am. And I believe that's all part of building up a child's cultural identity. Absolutely. How can white people teach their children to kind of support the building of of black and brown children's cultural identity? Yeah, acknowledging, I think, um, how systems have really uh, kind of propped whiteness up in our society. So it has become the standard by which everything else is measured. 
and, you know, being intentional about reversing that and dismantling that notion to say that the standard of greatness is all people, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> that there is not one standard for good, not one mm. standard for greatness, but that all racial groups have something special and dynamic that they have contributed to our well-being and to be able to say, and we need to reflect that in our media. We need to reflect that in our education system. I like that. So I think that one way that white families can really help in this movement is to begin to use books that really talk about the brilliance of Black people and really looking at videos and movies that depict the great contributions of Black people and seeing that as a critical part of the education of their children. Mm. <laughs> so it's not just for Black people, right? Oh, I love that. I love what you're saying. Um, and I love how you're talking about exposing even young children to all different kinds of cultures. You can sing a song from a different culture or play some music, read a book, showing children from that young age, the diversity of our world and not ignoring it, but really pointing it out. I just love, love what you're saying. Well, Andre, is there anything else that you would like to add that I haven't asked you? I think what I just want to reiterate and emphasize is this issue of race and equity and what that means specifically for young children is about their identity. When you think about adolescence and how we are seeing such an increase in suicide rates Mm -hmm. and just the emotional trauma that young people in general are um, experiencing today, Um, And across all racial groups. But I just think that, you know, we as parents and as adults really have to take notice to how they got there because they didn't just get there overnight. And we really have to be more intentional about helping young people understand that from an identity perspective, they are good. Mm -hmm. They are beautiful. Mm. They are appreciated. Right. It has to happen early. We have to take a preventative approach to changing the outcomes for children. Absolutely. And and I'm hoping that we can raise some children that can do a a little bit better job than we've done. (laughs) So that's my hope. So Andre, thank you so much for coming on the inaugural episode of Early Risers. Thanks, Diane. I'm Diane Halsey from Think Small, and I've been talking with Andre Dukes of the Northside Achievement Zone. This is Early Risers from Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you to our executive producer, Andrea Bork, our producer, Melissa Townsend, technical director, Alex Simpson, and the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. And thank you to Kaviesh Kabaraj for our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about this conversation and to hear more episodes, go to npr.org backslash early risers. And to get more resources about talking with very young children about race and racism, go to littlemomentscount.org. 